What do you think of the fact that one of the reasons why Bitcoin has been as successful as it has is, I don't want to say lack of corporate governance. It's probably the opposite, but you can't f*** with it. It's fantasy. Part of it's fantasy. People think they can get rich quick doing something new and exciting. So there's just, there's a lot of Kool-Aid around Of course that's true. But the fact that it is immutable, that it can't be messed with, that the code is what it is, like probably, not probably something they thought about a lot. They thought a lot about that at the beginning. That was like sort of the whole point of it was the anti-Wall Street thing. We needed a different answer that the banks can't do this. The Fed can't print more money. Like this just is what it is. I think it's a huge part of the Bitcoin story. And I'm not like a Bitcoin psycho, by the way. Yeah. No, it's a, that, that's certainly a big part of the engineering and the the, uh, the appeal. Um, but there are a lot of challenges in, in that in that space. You know, security is one thing, right? You also have to have some actual value. <laughs> there has to be some utility. And it's it's not always obvious. It's early. And then the other, it's early. The other, another few decades, we might find a use for it. Maybe beyond speculation. The other real danger there, guys, is uh, the um, state actors and terrorists and extortionists, you know, who are um, doing cyber invasion. Um, you know, that's their market. You never know who they are. You never know where that money's going. Yeah, everything's traded on some sort of uh, um, uh, cyber type of coin. Uh, and it's extremely dangerous. Those guys, I don't know if you've encountered any of these guys. Uh, Who, what do you mean? The hackers? Yeah. The ex- I've never met hackers. one. Uh, so we've, we advise companies who get into situations with these people. And um, so I've participated in some of the uh, incidents and resolutions. Like ransom type stuff? Yeah. Huh. And these guys are the most dangerous human beings on earth. I mean, sometimes it's state actors, but even, even the civilians. Um, you know, they extract some payment. And you know, put your business on hold until they get it. And usually, if you pay a ransom, you have something like a standstill agreement in corporate life. You'd have some assurance that the guy will walk away. Well, there's no particular assurance with the these threat actors because you can't sue them for breaching the standstill agreement. Yeah. So, um, so Hon- honor amongst thieves is like what you have to count on. Exactly. And they take that to a high level. First, they tell you two things. First, look, we'll show you exactly how we got in to your system so you can fix it. And we will make a blood representation that if any of our people come back to you, we'll kill them. How do they, how do they, they just say it and you have to trust them? Oh, they have, they have evidence of having, having done that too. Okay. It's a, Dangerous so, place. so these are amongst the most sophisticated criminals of all time. They're not. These are not like That's uh, a word for it. <laughs> well, but I mean, but so they're sophisticated enough to know that there's a better chance they'll get the payment if they make it seem as though they're yeah. they're civilized. It's like, look, we got you this time. So it's yeah. it's 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 interesting. They're not uh, they're not lunatics. There's a there's a methodology behind what they're doing. Oh, yeah. If that's what you mean by sophisticated, for sure. That's it's, what I mean. It's um, I, I would just call them dangerous. Yeah, yeah. They're just evil. Well, uh, the Bitcoin people would say that this went on prior to Bitcoin. Maybe Bitcoin makes it easier to do it in an untraceable way. Yeah. But p- there have been kidnappings for 100,000 years. It's not, yeah, yeah. you know, it's. it's- and if Bitcoin went away tomorrow, there would be a hack the next day. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm not recommending a banning <laughs> Banning uh, crypto, I don't really have a strong position one way or the other. But, yeah. but I think it's interesting. It, it was a spontaneous 
um, market that developed and, uh, you know, to the point about governance, you know, yeah, maybe there, if there was some governance around it, it would improve, but uh, I, I don't have any great insights onto it. Um, there's an SEC requirement now for public companies within a certain amount of hours to report any breach that they judge to be, I guess, what's the word they Material. use? Material. What is it? Material. Material. Okay. So somebody said, uh, well, w what constitutes material? My answer is, how about just f***ing report it? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's you, a good point. Are Doc. you kidding me? <laughs> uh, yeah, materiality has a technical definition that it's important to a reasonable investor. You can proxy that by saying, you know, some percentage of net income or assets, and but it's a blurry, vague line. And so our advice always is, if you have doubt, disclose It's it. probably material. And you can also say in that filing, and you have to file it within four business days after you de decide it's material. Um, but lots of companies are deciding, all right, we don't know if it's material yet, so we haven't made that determination, but we should file anyway and say, we've had this invasion. And then come back and say, actually, it turns out it wasn't material. Exactly. Or, so, it, or the opposite. So United, he United Health is going through that now, yep. and that obviously is material. Um, but this is now just a permanent part of the landscape. So United Health called in Palo Alto uh, to help them with remediation. So this is now a standard thing, which is what's so bullish for cybersecurity stocks, is that there's no way this is going to lessen in intensity, and there's no way it's going to get easier to deal with which means more profits. So it's, for, I called it, I wrote a post about this uh, last month. I called it a guaranteed bull market. Uh, doesn't mean all the stocks will keep going up, but is a guaranteed amount of work that needs to be done. First, these companies send in their SWAT team. Let's stop the breach. And then, I mean, you probably know more about this than I do, but then it's like, all right, we stopped the breach. Now let's assess the damage. Okay, now let's plan for how we make sure this never happens again. And of course, the hackers are already working on the new version of what they're going to do anyway. So it's almost like a nonstop guarantee that you're going to have to keep paying these companies to stay involved in your tech situation. Yeah, I mean, it's all hands on deck when you when you when the CISO or the security department detects some um, unauthorized actor, they, they got to probe it and see what's really going on, see if they can stop it, fix it, see if it's worse, and then start re you know reporting it up the chain. And if if it's uh, uh, encrypting significant amount of data, personal data, customer data, and, and, and that kind of thing, um, you know, they might have to take some serious actions like taking systems off the internet and th things like that. I feel like credit then, card companies have gotten a lot better at protecting uh, consumers. I was at the Apple store yesterday. I swiped my card. Nope. Chase called me right away. Is this you? Yes, it's me. Yeah. Like that yeah. used to not exist. Yeah, I, I think it is a cat and mouse game. I think both sides are getting more sophisticated. Two-factor authentication more, was a huge that adopting two-factor authentication is a huge deal. It's a big step. Yeah, it doesn't stop everything, but it's, will help. Yeah. But the, it's all hands on deck because in addition to the calls that you said you got to make, you got to call your insurance company, you got to call the FBI, and the FBI is helpful. Incidentally, uh, they 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 get involved, and especially if it's a state actor. Um, yeah, and so. And, you know, it's everybody uh, at the company has to be involved. And as you said, you got the Palo Alto or Microsoft, you, the, the vendors who participate in figure in, you know, doing a damage assessment and a remediation program. So it is a huge industry. When you, sit in board, when you sit in board meetings, that must be every, every meeting. There must be some discussion about 
like something that's uh, taking place to prevent? I think it's best practice these days for the CISO to provide the board with a quarterly data security report. Chief, secure, Chief Information Security Officer. Thanks. Sorry, I'm already uh, – No, no, no. I'm, <laughs> none of these terms are second nature to me. Yeah, so. yeah. But that's right. So Because uh, there um, are threats and infiltrations all the time. Some of them are material. Some of them are isolated. Some yeah. are at little subsidiaries. But the board – uh, is well advised to have a sense of what's going on, trends, lessons, learnings, um, and and then every year, maybe more frequently, um, have the that person, the CISO or the some, come on, come yeah. in and give us an update. You know yeah, where yeah. we are, where we're vulnerable, what we've patched. You know, and a company that that is hit in some big way will obviously want more periodic updates on that. Yeah, and then of course it goes beyond just like the data security gets into reputational security. The Sony hack was just like this incredible milestone uh, where all of a sudden emails are just released to the public as as punishment. So I think that was North Korea, right? Yeah. Microsoft yeah. had something like that too just recently, right? Yeah. Where senior emails. And this goes back to your materiality point because it's, it, you know, it's simplistic to say, well, it's 5% of assets or earnings. But yeah. wait a second. If it's about reputation, um, what's, is, yeah, what's yeah. going to happen to your customers or your employees, that is very, it's much harder to, oh, to so measure. North Korea did that in response to the Sony movie with Joe Rogan and uh, what's his name? They warned Sony, yeah, don't release do not it. allow this yeah. movie to come out where they ridicule Kim Jong-un. Oh, Jong it's called The Dictator. Kim Jong-un. No, not The Dictator. There was, uh, yes, it was called The Dictator. The, the interview. interview. No, the dictator was with uh, oh. Sasha Baron Cohen. The interview, that's right. The interview. So that was uh, James, Franco James Franco and, and Rogan. Seth Rogen. Yeah. And I never ended up seeing it. It wasn't good. I was afraid of North Korea. No, I just never. I never. Are we, are we rock and rolling? All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. 131? Hey, John, what show is it? It can't still be 131. I honestly thought that was last week. No, it's okay. I knew it. I knew it. I, no, knew, that. Okay. No, I knew that looked familiar. I knew it. It's Groundhog's Day. <laughs> there we go, John. We're back. Hey, John, what episode is it? Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Red Holtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Red Holtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Public. Most of the time when we're talking about Public, we're talking about how unbelievably, incredibly easy and joyous, is that a word? Joyful it is to buy U.S. Treasuries. Just boom, click, click, clack, done. Now, they've unleashed, rolled out, options trading to the world with a twist. What's the twist? The twist is that they are sharing literally 50% of the options revenue directly with you, the customer. That's pretty cool. So you know exactly how the, how much they're making because you're getting half of it. Public is literally giving you half of it. Okay. So it's a more transparent approach to options with no fees and you get something back on every single trade. Go to public.com and activate options trading by March 31st to lock in your lifetime rebate. This was paid for by Public Investing. Must activate options account by March 31st for revenue share. Options not suitable for all investors and carry significant risk. Full disclosures and podcast description. U.S. US members, members only. only. All right, ladies and gentlemen. 
Welcome to the hottest investing podcast on planet Earth. My name is Downtown Josh Brown. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Michael Batnick. Michael, say hello to the folks. Hello, folks. With us today, John is in the house, Duncan, Nicole, Sean is here, Rob is here. Everybody's here. Thank you guys so much for being here. We have a very special guest, impeccably timed guest. And uh, this was not done deliberately. It's just one of those signs that I get from the universe that uh, I am on the right track. Like the, the, the frequencies are right uh, because this just worked out so perfectly. Lawrence Cunningham, I call you Larry, but yes, sir. Lawrence yeah, Cunningham, yep. officially. Lawrence Cunningham has written several books, including The Essays of Warren Buffett, Lessons for Corporate America, a collection of Warren's famous shareholder letters. Larry is also a director and board member on several boards, including Markel and Constellation Software. He's also a prolific commentator on shareholder issues, corporate governance, boards of directors, all of, uh, in my view, some of the more interesting topics that we don't cover enough on shows like these, but that affect all shareholders and all people involved in the financial markets. Larry's work has fe been featured on the covers of Financial History. Uh, you wrote something about Munger recently, which we're going to talk about, uh, directors and boards on uh, about ESG. You've got a story on the top page at Market Watch this week about Warren Buffett's latest letter. Uh, how many books have you published in total? Six? It's embarrassing, Josh. 21. No, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, six good ones. The <laughs> other 15. Only six worth reading, guys. I will give you those six uh, later in the show. I, I want to start with this. I want to have you react to this. This is one of the coolest things that I've seen uh, in a very long time. I'm going to play something. I'm happy to share with you that starting in August this year, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine will be tuition-free. Oh, that's that. Um, if, you, if you watch that video on Instagram, people are crying. They're going crazy. So this is, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine is in the Bronx. And if you are going to medical school in the Bronx and you're going to serve that community or you come from that community, this is a really big deal. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Ruth did and how we got here. Where did she get the money from? And what's the backstory? Ruth is the widow of Sandy Gottesman, who was an early partner of Warren Buffett's in Berkshire Hathaway. And he passed away last year after amassing a fortune worth at least $3 billion, wow. mostly in Berkshire stock, which he acquired very early for the family and never sold. He also ran an, an investment a firm called First Manhattan. So it's not his entire net worth, but a huge part of it. And um, Sandy passed away and and Sandy told Ruth, do whatever you want with the money. I don't have any but restrictions or goals. she didn't know that the money existed, right? Oh, or no, how she, much she, there was? Oh, I think Ruth has oh, known. Oh, she did? Ruth's okay. very sophisticated. She used to be a professor of medicine there. I'm, I'm friends with Ruth and, and Sandy. And okay. so yeah, she's very sophisticated. Um, and her kids said, mom, do it as soon as you can. Just get rid of this money. And, and so they took a billion dollars and gave it. That's Yeshiva University is the parent of Albert Einstein. And um, that's where I went to law school, by the way. And I, I taught there for many years. And in fact, when I did the essays of Warren Buffett, um, one of the reasons Warren said yes was because of Sandy. 
Okay. Um, we were mutual friends. He was the chair of Yeshiva University. Oh, Sandy at that said, time. like, to give you the access he, to, to do the book. He vouched for me as a good guy, you know, someone oh, that's cool. I could trust. Very that's cool. That was an important part of it. So I was friends with Sandy for that 30 plus year and Ruth for 30 plus years. So it made me cry too, Josh. I mean, she's just a lovely lady. And to, you know, she had a, a, a range of opportunities that she could deploy that, that capital. And I think the one she chose is just exclusive. She was a professor at that school. But what is it about that school that she felt? Because a billion dollars to any institution is like a crazy amount of, if, unless you're talking about Harvard, it's a crazy amount of money. I was reading Felix Salmon, who writes a lot about um, philanthropy. One of the things this donation does is it's like a halo effect where now other donors look at this school that they otherwise maybe n would not have. And they say, all right, this is now a serious institution. We want to donate there too. So this is going to lead to like much bigger things than just the billion dollars. That's a huge part of it, Josh. You're absolutely right. And I think also the Gottesman family has a grand tradition of philanthropy. You look around town, they've got their, their name on universities and libraries, and we've got a, a campus in Israel. But I think three other things about Yeshiva University. First, she believes in education, she believes in medicine, and she believes in the Jewish tradition. Yeshiva University is a um, Jewish, uh, an institution under Jewish auspices. And, and so those three things, I think, are a trifecta for her and the, and the family. Okay. Uh, this is going to enable a lot of people to become doctors and to stay and, and practice medicine in that community. You're, you're absolutely really right. Cool. I mean, it's it, Yeshiva University, Albert Einstein, is a very good medical school. This will <laughs> you know, put it, uh, it catapulted right to the top. So when people give money to Harvard, I roll my eyes. Um, this is from the New York Times. This donation is notable not only for its staggering size, but also it's going to a medical institution in the Bronx, the city's poorest borough. The Bronx has a high rate of premature deaths and ranks as the unhealthiest county in New York. Um, so that's like it's game changing for for a lot of reasons. And that's really uh, that's really special. I want to get into uh, the book. And why you thought that the book would be something worth spending time on. Been a lot of books about Warren Buffett, uh, but just tell us a little bit about how you came to write it and what the idea was behind it, and then how you feel about how it's been received. Which obviously it's a it's a huge book. Thanks, Josh. I was running the corporate governance program at Yeshiva University's law school. And part of that job was to conduct high-powered research with uh, high impact and, and great visibility. And so I had done some things of modest <laughs> significance. And then I began reading Warren Buffett's letters, which most people probably think about as investment yeah. knowledge. And, and surely it is. But he had blinding insights on governance. On, on CEOs, um, incentives, board structures, conflicts, and M&A, accounting, just on and on and on. I thought, that's a conference. And so, and he was, a, he was certainly famous and certain. He's not the household name he is, he is today, but he's still pretty well known. So it would be a big splash. And when I told my colleagues and friends about it, they said, sounds great. How are you going to get Warren to come? You know, it would only really work if he came. I said, I don't know. I'll just ask a few friends. Um, so Sandy was one of the people I asked. And I also asked my dean who had another friend um, who knew Warren well. What and year so, was this? 95, 1995. And um, so through that network of, of friends, uh, I outlined a proposal, made it to Warren's desk. Uh, and then uh, just a quick joke here, Josh. 
This is in the old days. This is for cell phones and emails and stuff like that. So you used to communicate using a telephone and an answering machine. So yep. I was at work all day. I came home at 6 o'clock and put my answering machine on. I get a message saying, oh, hey, hey, Larry, this is Warren Buffett. I got your proposal. I was like, is this Dave? Is this some friend, you know, making fun of me? And, lo, it was him. He gave me his number, and I called him. He said, I like this idea. He had a couple of questions. So, you know, let's, let's figure out how to do this. I said, great. And the idea was to gather smart people from different points of view around investment topics, um, yeah. like, like efficient market theory, um, portfolio mix and construction, but also governance, M&A and accounting and board service. So I brought 20 experts, a bunch of professors, um, some practitioners, and we filled the, the moot courtroom at the law school, about 200 people. Which, who, was which, in the, who was in the audience? Oh, man. Well, Warren, Charlie Munger. Uh, Warren's wife, Susan, Ajit Jain, who's a big insurance uh, wow. master. Was this 1995? 90, the conference was in yeah. 96. Was Oasis there? Oh, Oasis. <laughs> the you know, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't do this conference in that room today. You'd have to get probably oh, Madison you'd have Square Garden. You'd have paparazzi. Yeah. It, Javits it'd be something. crazy. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and so it was It was that that kind of um, person. Well, Carol Loomis was in the audience. Uh, George Gillespie, who was his estate's lawyer. Um, other people from his world and, and mine. And then another one that's funny, because uh, he was my age and not that famous then, Bill Ackman was in that audience. He was oh, one, of the, one of the smart 200 who got a ticket, you know. So it was a, it was a um, riveting conversation. I mean, people really engage. You know, some, sometimes people just talk past each other. But this was like, you know, really probing, you know, what's the significance of indexing? What have everybody indexed? You know, how do you pick stocks? Why do you do that? How do you pick CEOs? And so it's just riveting. So we published the the basis for the conference was a, rearra a rearrangement of his letters that I put together by theme. Um, stocks, bonds, other assets, um, M&A, accounting, tax. You had 30 letters by then. Yeah, Nin exactly. You started in 1965? Yeah, so okay. I had about 30 letters. It was 230 pages. Why were the first pages? three letters uh, pseudonymous? Or not pseudonymous. He wrote it, but the others, the other C CEO had. It. What's yeah, the story behind that? Sam, I think his name was Chase. Well, he took Berkshire, uh, Warren took control of Berkshire Hathaway. It was a, somewhat of a slow transition. Uh, he didn't get the whole thing first. And he had to kind of work. Yeah. And the business itself was struggling. So, and he was young, and so there was a little bit of a process. And I, I think he co-authored those or uh, got okay. into the seat slowly. But his voice. Emerged fairly soon. So reading and, your book, yeah. I, like after the first three or four letters, it's like, oh, this guy's feeling himself now. It's feeling I, but himself I now. But I love, yeah. I love going back because I think about my own writing. It's unreadable. My first four years as a blogger, like I can't read any of it now. Right. But then I see where I started to hit my own stride. I think that happens for every writer. I'm sure you agree. Absolutely. So it happened for Warren Buffett. It even so. happened for Warren. It happened yeah, yeah. Warren and Josh Brown. I see a history of 30 letters. Yeah, so we. it was an instant hit. I, I didn't expect this either, but um, in, also in the audience was a reporter from Forbes magazine, which it was a, at, at that time it was the premier finance business magazine. And its office happened to be right across the street. Was from, it Jason's wife? That's what I was going to say. It wasn't Jason, I, although I met Jason through this too. It was, um, I, I'm for, forgetting his name, he's not a super famous fellow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but uh, he came across the street and, and uh, what's oh, going funny. on here? I saw, well, here's what we're doing. Yeah. So he sat in. 
And about a month later, they did a, pr a profile of the event, the book, and a picture of me, <laughs> not Warren. And uh, the title of the piece was Three Little Words. And the point of that was that Ben Graham said those are the three most important – the three most important words in investing are margin of safety. Mm. And Warren says those are still the three words. So, so it got a – you know, it, that gave it a lot of attention. It got a lot of lift. Warren sent me a little note on that piece in Forbes saying, you say it better than I do, which you know, I rolled out of my chair. So when did the um, book come out? 97. Okay. Yeah. So it's been an eight edition. So it's now Wait, almost- So the success of the conference, somebody said, this is a book. And you were like, of course it's a book. Uh, Warren actually said it because um, oh. I just put it together. I still have the, you know, a black, black heat tape document that I was, and that was yeah. 120 pages. I put it on the table and he said, you know, Larry, I think it was after the conference was over, but I think he knew it the whole time. He said, Larry, you know, you, you ought to consider publishing this as a book. I said, well, that's, that's a really good idea. And now after the <laughs> Forbes piece ran, I started getting, again, this is in the old days, so I got faxes and phone calls. There was no emails. I got blinded by, by attention, including big-time book publishers who said, we want to publish that book. And I think it's okay for me to say that one of those publishers was Wiley, John Wiley and Sons, yeah, the, sure. the, uh, the, the, the gorilla in, in that field. And uh, with an editor who, who I'm – became friends with and is still a very good friend, Miles Thompson, still a big-time editor in the field. And and he he wanted the book and was wooing me. And I, I met Mrs. Wiley. It was a family company back then. I, he, he really, really wanted the book. And he, and he offered a – I won't tell you the amount, <laughs> but a, 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 an advance that made me fall out of my chair. And I called Warren and I, I said uh, – told him what happened. And he said, I don't recommend that. Uh, I recommend – I think you ought to publish it yourself. Why? Uh, two or three reasons. He one was he he had personally had a bad experience with book publishing. There had been a book, I think it was called The Money Masters by John Train, that had treatment of Berkshire and Buffett that wasn't cleared with Warren and wasn't accurate and caused him some trouble. And he just didn't he got a bad feeling about about publishing. And the second two or three reasons was he said, look, you will have much – if you do it yourself, you'll have much more control. Mm. If you, you turn it over to a publisher, you basically cede all control. And the other reason was you'll probably make more money if you do it yourself. Sure. I said, OK, well, that was a pretty clear no. <laughs> you know, so I broke the bad news to Miles and I went and published it myself. Now, they, again, this is before emails. It was also before Amazon. So I printed copies of, of this book, printed them in Nebraska, and had them shipped to my apartment in New York City. And then I promoted it. To store back in the old days, these were print stores like, like Dalton, and like B. Dalton, B. Dalton, Borders yeah, and Noble, so wait, Borders. So you Borders. walk into a retail store and talk to the manager. I'd send letters to the to the sales and distribution teams. So so Warren, so, all right, wait, hold on. Yeah. So when Warren says I don't recommend that, is that him? Is that him saying like? actually don't do that. I, that's how I took it. And I, right, I do so think having studied over the past 30 years, leadership by delegation, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, people often say, well, just go ahead and do whatever you want. But you have a, a sense of the person's intention. And, and you, I think so he's, to that, he's so. signaling to you, like, don't do that. Yeah. And, okay. and it was fine with me. It was, it was challenging because in some miles would have made my life easy, but he's Warren was absolutely right that had a seated control and, and probably made less money. Um, but right. So I had to do um, shoe leather, sweat equity to get it into all those stores. And I got it into um, firms too. I sent letters to all the big firms around, around town and in New York, then there were hundreds. And so I just sent letters to the chief investment officer said, I've done this. Here's a copy of the Forbes article. Let me know if you want to buy from your copy. And they'd buy 25 or 50 or a hundred. And so I started getting the word out. And <laughs> it was funny. I mean, I had thousands of 
boxes or hundreds of boxes of thousands of books in my apartment. So every day I'd go to work and I'd come home from work. I'd get all my orders and type up the labels and, and print them and call UPS and have them down with my doorman. Oh my God. And I did that for nine years. I mean, I did it all by myself. <laughs> and, you know, I, how many editions have been printed by now? We just came out with the eighth edition. So about on average, Do you know how many books you've sold? Yeah, nearly a million. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Larry, when oh, you, that's right. <laughs> when, <laughs> when you wrote the book, were you, because these are all Berkshire letters, were you aware of his partnership letters from the 50s? Yeah, I, I examined them. Um, and my and, and someone else has gone and, uh, and, and published them. That was a great one. Really nice. Yeah. Um, my judgment, was it, the era was different. The style was different. The purpose was different. His audience, his constituents was a little bit different. They, they so, weren't shareholder letters. Yeah, they, they weren't shareholders. For his limited partners. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, and to Josh's earlier point, right, that I think the stride came later, to, in, in my humble opinion. I think they, they were great letters, nothing, but I just detected a different tenor, different vibe and everything. So different culture for the book. And so- what was the, what was the first thing that he did that really let him feel, in your opinion, that he that he was like really good at this. I know him. He'll never say I'm really good at this. The you know we we all love him for the the aw shucks. Like that's fine. Yeah. But like you could tell in his writing, he does turn a corner at one point, and he just you feel that he really has a confidence that maybe he didn't start out with. What investment do you think, or what what move that he made do you think led to that? I'd, I'd say Geico. Amex? If, if I Geico? had to fix it, Geico. yeah, a little earlier. But Amex very. Geico was almost bankrupt, right? Yeah, he rescued it. And his discovery—I mean, even early—you know—his very early encounters with that. When he wrote that, he wrote a little article on uh, the economics of insurance. I forget, I forget the title, but it was sort of a case study of Geico that his mentor Ben Graham had introduced him to. Introduced him to. Um, and I think I think as he wrote that, he began to discover that he had the analytical inclination to, you know study a balance sheet and think about things like moats. And, and uh, so I, th I think it was that, but you know, another, in another version of the answer, Josh, I, I think he kept discovering and kept learning. Like there, there are hundreds yeah, I'm of sure it's cumulative. corners. Yeah. Was like the IMAX the early seventies? Yeah. Yeah. And that was in, an opportunistic purchase. They had been embroiled in some bit of a scandal. Called he called the, the salad, salad oil, oil scandal. Yeah. And so it's it, it's a great brand and it's got a huge runway and there's nothing – the economics are solid. Uh, but because of that hiccup – But it was a governance issue. It was a governance yeah. issue, yeah. And uh, But it wasn't it, – there wasn't doubt about the trustworthiness of the leadership. You know, it was an interior kind of problem, but it was punished by the stock market. And, and Warren noticed this disconnect between the value of that company and the price it was trading at. So he seized upon it. And, and that, that was notable too, because it was, that was really almost a pure Warren play. The, the Geico bit, you know, had a lot to do with Ben Graham. Another turning point a lot of people like to point to is the Seas Candies investment in 1972 that Charlie Munger had a lot to do with. So all those guys deserve credit, but you know, B Buffett is an exemplar. And I think the Amex is a very good example of that. It's so funny when you read Warren in recent years, how nostalgic he seems to be for deals like C's. He's still writing about C's 50 years later, like it was the greatest thing he ever did. Yes. Meanwhile, he's sitting on, he, <laughs> he's sitting like a $300 billion position at Apple or more. I don't even know what the number is. Because it, it's time though. So like the earnings. Or the furniture, the furniture mart. He loves to retell the story of doing a deal with the old lady and then <laughs> uh, keeping the family involved. And it's like, what? 
what I'm reading two pages on wooden furniture. But don't you think it's because the the compounding nature of these investments? So whenever he invested in season in the seventies, the earnings from the company are now making this up three hundred times what he paid for the company. Uh, 60 something years ago. Yeah, it's the gift that, that keeps on giving. And I, I think he points to these because of the the value uh, of the of the retained earnings and also the value of the lessons. I mean, I think with, with C's in particular, it was the insight that it's okay to pay up for value. He had been a thrifty cigar butt investor. Ben Graham had told him, you know, look for stocks on the cheap. Yeah. And that's what he was doing. And Munger actually nudged him to say, look, if you're going to be in this for the long term and you're going to start buying lots of big companies, that's not going to work. You need to look for uh, brand power, franchise, and boy, do I have something for you, this chocolate company. People love it. Well, also, those pieces of shit that Graham was able to buy in the 30s where there was more – the company was worth more uh, alive than dead or more dead than alive, said differently. Th those disappeared. Those disappeared. Yeah, it was much harder. Because it wasn't – these companies were not a going concern. Yeah, it was much harder to do. So you, I, I think that's why he points to C's and, and even Nebraska Furniture Mart because that family had a special culture that they put onto that shop and, and they they had a sense of growth. Um, so – and to flip it around, Josh, the other company that he always talks about was the opposite. was Dexter shoe. That was a, it was a uh, shoe manufacturer and he, he, he paid wrote, up for you, it. You wrote about that. Yeah. yeah so I, wrote that? A, I wrote a book called uh, Big Mistakes. That's right. Yeah. And that was the example that I used in that book. It's an excellent example. Yeah. And it, he points to it all the time, like as like a scab because he didn't foresee um, shipping containers and cheap labor. And manufacturing going abroad. Yeah. yeah. And so just devastated. And he talks about that. All, it wasn't a huge amount of money, right? But the lesson. Um, I also think he knows if the family, like the jewelry company, uh, Borsheim's or um, Nebraska Furniture Mart, he could never do those deals now, even if he met the family under the same circumstances, because they're so tiny, they're not even worth the paperwork. He could do it like as a favor if he wanted to like change someone's life. But like for economic reasons, there would be no reason to be in the room talking about a deal like that. And maybe that's, that's a part of the nostalgia is – the, that kind of thing is so out of reach now. Yeah, yeah. The most recent is the the flying pilot. You know, the Hassam family, which turned into a pain in the ass for him, was a lot of trouble. Um, you know, you tell, so give us the big. give us the cliff, cliff's nose. It's a what, what is it called? Flying J or what is it? I think it's Flying J or it's a big it's a company. It's a uh, truck stop chain. Truck stop chain, and they have a lot of other interests interests too. And it's based in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's a, it's a family business built yeah. up by uh, Jim Haslam, founded it in the fifties, I guess. His whole family, his sons and daughters, um, grew it. Um, Jimmy Haslam was the ultimate CEO and, and chair, and they had a you know family reasons why they were interested in pivoting out of that. But not immediately because of the heritage and all that. So um, another Knoxville-based Berkshire subsidiary called Clayton Homes. Yep. Um, the Claytons knew the Haslam's and they got to talking and um, the Claytons figured, look, I can introduce you to Buffett and Berkshire. And, and so they did. And that's a common way for Buffett to get opportunities through the sort of existing network. And they seemed to hit it off. And it was the kind of business Berkshire would like to have. It's um, The problem is they, they bought it in pieces, not the whole thing. Yeah, they I think they bought 60% with an option to go higher. And then they got to 80%. And most recently, they were going to 20. Larry, when you say the kind of business, yeah, what, what, do you, what do you think the kind of business is uh, that he likes to buy? Or yeah, it's, this was family built, family owned. It had a culture uh, of, of loyalty, of internal um, identity. Uh, employees like to work there. 
it had um, a franchise. I mean, it's, as Josh said, the big part of the business are truck stops along the southern highways. So there's a little bit of pricing power. It's uh, a toll, toll booth. Predictability. Specs, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Two and two. And so, um, and then also, I, I think the other piece too is that um, when Warren met Jimmy, Warren's big thing is to size people up and see, you know, they see eye to eye. And the impression I had, I wasn't in the room, I don't have firsthand knowledge, but the impression was Warren said, this is a guy I can do business with. So that's an important part of it. I, yeah. mean, I, I do know Warren says no uh, hundreds of times to saying yes. You know, often it's just because, yeah, I, I don't like the cut of your jib. So this- He seems- doesn't have a, ch- a mental checklist either. He probably no. just like, it's probably just obvious to him in a second because he's a genius. And it, it, he's probably almost always right. Yep, I think so. And that's been my observation. That's Although in this, this letter, talent. it's an amazing talent. But in, in this year's letter last week, you know, one of the passages was um, rascals, are, that's the word he used, yeah. are, are everywhere. You got to be really careful. It's, I think he said it was, it's been one of the biggest challenges in my business life. And, you know, he's always under, uh, understating him, himself. I mean, I think he's been amazingly good at, at discerning. You think that's in reference to the lawsuit with the the flying J thing? I don't you know, I can't I can't say. But okay. obviously that relationship deteriorated and, and it's what was the problem? Are, the the family doesn't like the the final price for the rest of the business? It seemed to be I mean the surface disagreement was about interpreting the contract's accounting, you know, valuation provision. It's just you know, whether that's, that's we want more was money. allowed to use push down accounting. So re, it yeah, reduce yeah. earnings. Um or leave the depreciation rates the way they are so they'd be higher. And they yeah, big tussle about that. I, I assume people fight about accounting all the time. So to have this land up in court and on the front pages, I think something else was going on. It's such so, like a so famously he hates all that like accounting jargon, right? Like what are the operating earnings? Enough of the nonsense. Well, no, this Cutting is, this is yeah. the problem though with buying, with buying a majority in a business with the option to buy the rest. Probably you're going to want to buy the rest because you have the majority and it's annoying, uh, uh, like even like paying out the earnings to another entity. Minority that, interests are, that, that's a great point, Josh. Minority interests are always, always tricky. Berkshire prefers not to do it. I think they've done it seven times out of 70 acquisitions. The other six, I think, you know, went reasonably well. Uh, and they did, the, the family needed to do that for estate planning or tax or transition. So he kind of went along with the Dairy Queen was one, Shaw Industries was one. The, the uh, Israeli uh, metal uh, company was another. I, I think all those went reasonably well. So th- this was an odd one. I, yeah, I can't, it's hard because what ends up happening is by virtue of Berkshire's involvement, they probably are growing the value of the business that they're then going to have to buy the rest out. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice problem. So you're almost like, a, well, I just think about, like I think about uh, Smith, Barney, Morgan Stanley, which was a joint venture. Citigroup basically needed to be bailed out. So... They threw Smith Barney into a joint venture with Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley had, I think, the majority from the beginning and then this understanding that they could buy another tranche and then they could buy the whole thing. And it was an amazing deal for Morgan Stanley, which means it was a terrible deal for Citi. But Morgan Stanley probably was working against its own interest, building the value of that joint venture before they would have to buy the rest of it. So that's always uh, tricky. Can we pivot to Munger? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I mentioned before that this was a fortuitous uh, podcast having you on as a guest, but I didn't mean it in the sense that, oh, uh, Charlie just passed away. I I really meant it more in terms of all of the governance issues that are happening right now. This is like one of those things where 
I think he was one of the most extraordinary Americans who has ever lived. But you, like, you would know better than I would. That's my impression. I'm like a massive Munger fan. I re- I've read everything. Overrated. Yeah. No, I'm you, just kidding. Yeah. No, no I, I think he was right up. He's right up there with Ben Franklin. You do, right? Yep. Okay. It's not an accident that uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac was uh, an homage to uh, Ben Franklin's. Yeah. I, uh, Peter Kaufman, the editor, deliberately deliberately chose that, and I think I think Charlie appreciated it, and that was one of the reasons I, he supported it. So, absolutely. I mean, just in in, in several different ways, Charlie is like. Ben. Um, and, and so he, Ben Franklin was Charlie's um, idol. Uh, he had a, a, a bust statue of, yeah. of, of, and what do they have in common? One of the things is they, they were super smart and, and better. They were super interested in all kinds of subjects. Curiosity. And, curiosity and yeah. passionate learners, lifelong learners, you know. And so, you know, Ben Franklin you know, he's an advisor to all those founding fathers and the presidents and stuff that he's a diplomat, he's an uh, inventor, he's a translator, he's a publisher, um, uh, he, he, uh, he's phenomenal interest in science. Um, and Munker was a little like that. He, he, he read deeply philosophy, economics. Architect. Arch- he was an architect, design buildings. Um, and uh, it was a philanthropist, um, was interested in science. You know, Lawyer. He was a very good lawyer, founded a law firm that is one of the, um, other than mine, top law firm. But, but Decent yeah, investor. So great investor. Yeah. I mean, just a minute, right? So there you go. Um, polymaths, right? They were really good at lots of he's different a, things. He's a polymath. Yeah. Polymath is a really good word for it. And there aren't that many of them, especially today. I think there might have been more. In, in they're the Frank best writers. Uh, if they're decipherable, like Umberto Eco, like if if you're reading a decipherable polymath, it's a it's such a pleasure because of how many things they reference and pull into all the analogies and metaphors. Munger they, didn't write a lot, did he? I don't. I don't know if I ever read it. He Munger didn't write spoke a, maybe spoke more spoke more than he wrote. I think. But yes, yeah. he, he did. Uh, he gave eleven lectures. That's a the Port Charlie's Almanac has eleven lectures that he gave at university commencements. Did and, he write partnership letters? He did, and I, I don't think I've read those. He, he put a few of them in that collection of uh, essays of Warren Buffett. I put in three. They were letters to the shareholders of Westco Financial, which of which he was the CEO from two thousand ish to, to um, 2014 when it became a wholly owned subsidiary of Berkshire. And so he'd write thoughtful letters. You know, it was a very different style from Daily, Buffett. Uh, Daily Journal. Did and he, he write? CEO, yeah. He, Daily Journal. Uh, he didn't write anything, but they had those annual meetings um, yeah, out there okay. where he'd That's sit there all day long and talk to his shareholders. But, you know, in terms of his writing stuff, and he also wrote a, a, a letter in the 50th anniversary annual report. So right next to mm. Warren's as they were, they were doing reflections. So what, what did we learn? How do we do this? And I swear, you, I mean, the style is totally different from Buffett's. I mean, you could tell immediately, but the brains, I mean, you could just see that, that in, intellect in the, in the logic, the diction, the sequence, the, the strength. I mean, it's, it's, it's really powerful. He's right. so matter of fact and so economical with words. <laughs> I just, I, one of my favorite things about uh, the Berkshire meeting since they started putting them on the internet because I never got to go, oh. which I'm I'm not thrilled with myself. But Warren will do an eight-minute answer to a question. <laughs> I have nothing to add. And Charlie will say, I have nothing to add. Uh, oh, I want to ask you, um, <laughs> do you, do you think that the meeting, the annual meeting in Omaha will outlive Warren? 
I do. We, my wife and I wrote a book about that. Our prediction was called Berkshire Beyond, Beyond Buffett. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the one I did, I did that one. Uh, the, the one I did with her is called the Warren Buffett shareholder. And it's it's all about that meeting, why people go, what do they learn? And, and a big part of what happens now is relationship building, meeting other people, yeah. creating opportunities, networking. And so th- some of that will retreat, but there are enough um, participants and, and I don't know, uh, just – uh, fellow thinkers, um, it's, smart. It's, yeah, it's there. It's Lollapalooza. So it's a, a Lollapalooza. It's a pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage. So it's, I think it'll, you know, it'll be different. We were going to go, we were going to go pandemic here. Remember that? I was supposed to go uh, and, uh, yeah. yeah. But, well, yeah, I don't want to get into it. My wife found out it was on the weekend. <laughs> we're supposed <laughs> to be like, home. <laughs> she's like, you, you don't work on weekends also now, right? Uh, like it's not a, the next thing that you're doing. It's a family thing. Next time, tell her it's yeah, a family she thing. She ain't doing that. It's all family. Uh, they, they have a Waldorf Astoria there. All right, so they have a couple uh, nice hotels. I wanted to. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, Vitaly Katzenelson goes every year, and he wrote about you. And there are these recurring meetings, and our, our friend Ed Borgato goes. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, him? yeah, no, Ed and Vitaly. Vitaly wrote that book, The Warren Buffett Shareholders, a collection of forty-five essays that we solicited, he's in there. and he he wrote one of the pieces. So yeah, that's what it's he, a beautiful piece. He's a very good writer. So who sits on the dais then? In the absence of Warren and Charlie, is it Greg yeah. and, and, and yeah. Ajit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Warren's last paragraph in this year's letter was, come see the three of us on the stage. You know, three of us who are now running things on the stage. And Greg Abel. Greg Abel and Ajit Jane. Right? Okay. Yeah. And, and, and Warren. Okay. Yeah. And so it's been interesting. The evolution, um, Greg and Ajit have sat on that stage the past six or eight years or so, but they have not had a high visibility. It's been mostly the Charlie Munger. The, uh, yeah, they Warren do like Trump. one song and then. One song. Like the opening act. So they might do more <laughs> this year. I mean, I, I think that would be, a, frankly, not that anyone's looking for my advice, but I think it would be a good idea to try to begin to give them a little more airtime. Um, I, I guess one question I have is do, do you know, should – should anything else be done? Any other kind of tribute, you know, an empty chair or some, again, they don't need my advice, but I think, I think they'll do have something to, to recognize. I'm Munger impersonator. Oh my God. A hologram. Can you have one? I don't like the empty chair. I I feel like (laughs) the emptiness, the emptiness will be felt right Mm -hmm. by everyone. Um, because of just like what a stalwart presence he was in that seat. I think it like almost doesn't need to be said that he's not there. Um, but I'm sure they're going to do something really nice. That was certainly the flavor of the letter, right? He says, look, there, here's the tribute. And as Warren in the letter has a nice tribute to Charlie and then says, look, I'm going to get right down to business because that's what Munger would – Charlie would have wanted me to do. And that's it. Well, that's a bit of a softball question for you. But what what is it about corporate governance that is so important to Buffett and should be so important to all investors? Corporate governance is, is the system that protects shareholder investments. Or it doesn't. Or can fail. Can Yes, it, it's, it's, it's a hidden – um, pivot. It, it, it can either be very valuable or, or, or value destroying. And that was one of the reasons I got to do that conference and I did that book because I was a governance guy with some interest in investing. And I found this investor who really cared about governance. So it was a neat match. And I think um, you know, directors are stewards of investor capital or they're supposed to be. That's that's one conception. Not all directors are like that. So for an investor, for a shareholder, understanding who's on the board, what their incentives are, what their relationships are, whether they own the stock, whether they bought the stock with their own money um, is much more important than I think a lot of uh, people uh, think, right? Now, obviously, the economics, the finance, the, the uh, competitive situation, the, the economic uh, prognosis, and all of that's Maybe more important, maybe vital, certainly vital. But the stewards is 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 a critical aspect of it. 
it seems to me that it's not an issue that anyone cares about until the stock goes down. And then that's when the activists come in. And then that's when there are board seats up for grabs and uh, proxy battles and, and the like. I guess it kind of needs to be that way because if you had a company that was constantly uh, entertaining fights for board seats, it would probably be very distracting. Um, so it just kind of worked out that that's when we hear about board seats when the stock is down 30%. Yeah, an and an activist comes in. Very rare. I mean, you have activist campaigns when a stock's not in a 30% drawdown. But as the activist, you're probably behind the eight ball because the institutional shareholders are like, everything's fine. What's your problem? Um, is that your experience for the most part? Is that what you've seen? I, I think you've captured the the essence of the system, uh, and it's quite favorable. That that it's nice not to see the, the the governance, and there's no need for the directors to be front and center. Right. Uh, and if a problem arises, we have a system through which activist shareholders can take a position, apply pressure, and 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 throw the weak directors or or worse or worse out. So I, I, it's it's a pretty good system, and I, I agree with the other point you made, Josh. That you know it would be bad to have a system where directors are running for office and trying to get the seats and they're yeah, being turned politics over politics and it sucks. It's politics and it sucks. And I'm a little concerned, I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm a little concerned that the current landscape is leaning towards that direction as we see. Which direction? Towards um, directors running for office and being more political. Because then you need a wartime CEO in there at all times. Yeah, well, yeah, as you know, the, the the talk in corporate governance these days is often leaning towards social and environmental and other topics rather than fundamental shareholder value. And that's and, and you see more and more expectations being put on boards, not just to be stewards of shareholder capital, but to advance various ag agendas within Has that the peaked? organization. I think the pendulum is swinging away from that. I'm to glad to hear that you guys think that. That's my own observation. I have a, another article out this, um, this quarter in directors and boards that tries to assess the landscape and I, I that's where I so you agree out. we swung too far yeah and now it's coming back yeah a little bit. that's what I say in the piece the tipping point was probably engine number nine and companies winning board seats explicitly saying that what they were going to be pursuing had nothing to do with the profits of the and in fact would run counter to the profitability of the company that might have been like a peak I think it might have been a peak and since that that involves Exxon it's interesting to update because this proxy season, a, a couple of environmental activists filed a share, shareholder proposal at Exxon that would re essentially require the company to begin a process of eliminating its um, oil and gas business. Uh, right. There's no concern there <laughs> for that shareholders. A, is that going to be a popular vote? Right? <laughs> well, and they had similar proposals the last two years and it was voted down. So Exxon said, we're not going to include that because it's been voted down. And usually what a company like that would do is um, call the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, which has rules about excluding proposals that have been voted down. And usually just the SEC would say, yeah, that's right. So we, we agree with you. So, you know, you can turn them down. Exxon was concerned that it wouldn't get a fair hearing at the SEC today because it's sensing that the current – It's the Biden SEC. There you go. You could say it. And so what they did – I said it. Thank you. And so what they, Exxon did instead is filed a lawsuit in federal district court in Texas they're, where they're headquartered asking a judge to declare that they could exclude this. Well, that's the right state. As soon as they did that, the two proponents withdrew their proposal. Yeah. Saying – Don't mess with Texas. I took that to be a tacit admission. <laughs> right. I took that to be a tacit admission that Exxon was right, that they agreed. Yeah. Then those proponents asked the court 
to um, dismiss the lawsuit as moot uh, since the fight is over. And Exxon refused to go along with that, saying, oh, no, this is going to happen again and again and again, so we'd like to put an end to it now. So that's a pending fight. So I, I think you guys are right that the pendulum, uh, you know, we had a tipping point and the pendulum was going the other way, but there's still a lot of strength and momentum um, to contend with. And Do you think that, I'm sure there's been quantitative analysis of companies where a lack of turnover in the directors has led to either a premium or outperformance of the stock price. Do you think that companies with the steady corporate governance or good corporate governance trade at a premium? Yeah, there are there are a lot of studies. It's hard. It's 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 somewhat intractable topic. Uh, you know, um, econometric studies. There's so many different variables. You know, not just you know tenure, age, or um, history with the company, prior position. So there is there's work around this, um, and I think. My, my own opinion is that every director should be evaluated individually. And there are some directors who are great um, at 60, 70, 80, and 90 years old, including Charlie Munger <laughs> or Warren Buffett. And others start to uh, falter and, and lose touch and become just not relevant to their industry or their company. They can't contribute value anymore. And that might even happen at 60. Uh, so and and so there's a trade-off, or, or you have to look at each individual and, and evaluate their strengths. You know, in terms of tenure or duration, I, I think there's a lot of value to the experience of serving on a board and seeing a company go through lots of cycles and, and lots of growth. So the directors who have been around for 15, 20, 25 years add enormous value. On the other hand, uh, it's good to get fresh perspectives on things and younger people in there. So I think to have a balance. I'm curious to hear your take on this. So. The board of directors serves the shareholders, right? So it's the shareholders ultimately that are judging the board members and the directors. With the growth of indexing, now it's such a large portion of the assets. How has that impacted the dynamic of, of board members? It's an excellent question. You're absolutely right. The shareholders elect the directors. Directors owe fiduciary duties to the company and its shareholders. And usually if, you know, if shareholders are picking those directors, I'd, I'd defer to whatever they have to say. With index funds, the basic business model is to buy every stock in the index and when do, at a, without incurring any costs. And so you charge very low fees. You don't have the resources to evaluate every director or every board. And so instead of looking to see how how good this fellow is, how long he's been there, how old he is, they have guidelines, generic general principles that say things like um, we vote against people who are over 80 or uh, we vote against people who've been there 10 years or we vote in favor of people who have diversity or we vote against the chairs of nomination committees who don't have whose boards don't have 30% women or uh, – and on and on. They've got lists of things. So it's quantitative. It, yeah, and, and generic. Uh, yeah. yeah, and and uh, what algorithmic or uh, – without, so, ju without judgment. But do they also rely to some extent on Glass-Lewis and the proxy uh, uh, advisories? Yes. Okay. And I think when those two firms, uh, Institutional Shareholder Services, ISS, ISS and, and, and Glass-Lewis, Glass when they came on the scene – they, what what they their, their value proposition was we'll do that homework right. for the indexing community and I think for many years they did but they faced the same problem that they can't charge large fees either their clients are index funds which don't have large fees and so they're, they're a top 10 shareholder at every company at this point yeah the BlackRock State Vanguard, Street State Vanguard uh, six eight percent each and yeah. so 20 percent for a company they have a, a lot. lot of power it's, it's extraordinary I mean this is another you know 
challenge, I think, that we're going to face in, in corporate governance, just how much weight those firms ought to have. And, and they're, they're starting to recognize that too. Instead of voting for everyone, they're trying to pass through the vote to the to their beneficiaries, to their investors. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a great challenge. And I, so I do think you're right that the, the system is designed so that people can look at a person and a position and a performance in a very specific way. But when you're managing trillions of dollars for very little uh, fee, uh, you just don't have the resources to to do that. So the default has been these guidelines, and um, they're error prone. Yeah. Well, not not all of the indexers act the same. And Larry Fink was very vocal on ESG issues, specifically with regard to climate. I think uh, on the ESG front, I don't think anyone would say it's a negative that we've gotten the representation of of women on boards significantly higher. I think that's one thing that's been accomplished that doesn't get enough attention. And, you know, there are people that if it's 48% women, will just never be happy until, you know. But like I think for the most part, there's been huge progress and ESG as a theme has been part of that progress. But then I think that too is kind of like in reverse now or on the run uh, along with a lot of other identity political things. Um, and now it appears that the indexers are walking back, not just indexers, the asset managers are walking back some of the climate commitments that they made during the pandemic when everyone was home and in a rage about everything. So they made promises and now there's, for different reasons, they're saying, all right, maybe we didn't mean what we said or we meant it in a different way. What, what, what are we to make of what's happening there, do you think? I, that's, a, that's a great outline, Josh. And I do think um, you're right that a lot of progress on gender diversification of boards and, and racial and ethnic diversity of boards has occurred and it's it's still going on. I mean, before 2000, there were not that many boards of, Fort, of S&P 500 companies that had a woman on it. Uh, and today, every which, S&P. Which, by the way, is not good for the company. It, it was, if the ESG folks never came along, half the population is female. Yeah. What it, are we doing? It, it was an impoverished, you know, civilization at, at, yes. at, at that period. And, and likewise with minorities, uh, ethnic and, and racial minorities. Um, uh, today, the Russell 3, I think every – half of the companies in the Russell 3000 have at least three women on the board. So they're – now – whether somebody would be happy at 40% or not, we're, we're still a long way from there. So sort of typical is around 30-ish percent. So we're, we're make, making progress. It's, no, tre- no it's trending in the right direction. It's trending in the right direction. The same thing with racial and ethnic minorities. Is it too, is it too slow? Maybe. Exactly. But it's – That's the debate. But d- directionally, it's, directionally. It's, it's going in the right place. And to your point, so I think when the ESG concept was minted by the United Nations in 2004, it had a series of incontestable virtues that it would be impossible to disagree with, including the representation of females on, on boards and uh, conservation of water and protection of, of, of wildlife and uh, assuring a, a governance system that would recognize these values. All good and wonderful and wasn't made a lot of contra- great progress. Wasn't even controversial. Wasn't controversial. Right. What has what happened in the last seven years and why we have the controversy in the last three is that opportunists took advantage of that vessel to put their own much more aggressive uh, agenda items in. Oh, it, well, if, if, it's, if we're looking out for um, the environment – Here's what you need to do, and we need to. Um, everyone needs to stop uh, emissions and and livestock development and oil and gas. So it just it got a little uh, uh, hijacked, um, and so 
uh, to your point, you know, Larry Fink, I think, was on the early wave that, hey, these are good ideas and, and it's good for a portfolio of investments. Good for like their shareholders. Yeah. Right. And then I think what he's recognized in the past couple of years and, and you know, just two days ago, the, one of the big environmental coalitions um, saw a defection of three big asset managers. Um, this is the Climate Action 100 Coalition of large asset managers that all were getting together to say, we want to see more emissions disclosure. Um, but withdrawing from that were PIMCO, State Street, and um, JP Morgan. And, Morgan. and they didn't get a, into a lot of detail about why they left, but it's pretty clear that they had a different view of what that organization should be doing. And I think those firms were interested, honestly, in a little more disclosure and a little more systematic in ways that they could analyze in, in, in a big way. The coalition, upon their departure, acknowledged that we're in this for much more than disclosure. We're trying to change business uh, at our speed. And so there's a, there's a, a disagreement um, unfolding uh, today, you know, even now. Um, and it ties into your tipping point question. This is well, all the SEC, I think, is now backing off from ESG or climate disclosures, they wanted those to be mandatory for public companies to detail, I suppose, what their risks were from climate change or what their how 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 causative their activities were toward negatively toward climate change, and what was the result of that? Yeah, we're, that's we're in the middle of that game too because the SEC announced yesterday that it's going to meet next Wednesday to vote on how much of that proposal is going to be retained and how much they're going to live okay. without. Right. Uh, it's hard to, it, it, it's tea leaves, but my, my impression is that the original proposal would have required companies to disclose the emissions data, not only about their own operations, but also about their, their supply chain, their suppliers of their energy and the users of their energy. It's called scope one when it's theirs, scope two when it's the supplier, scope three when it's um, downstream. Huge controversy, especially over sounds, scope I was going to say, it sounds expensive. Very expensive and very very difficult to measure. I mean, this, this is this is, you know, you're relying upon you know measuring the use of your products by third parties way down the value chain. So, um, so it's very controversial. I my the the the, the inside beltway inside Washington D.C. talk seems to be that the proponents of the proposal are willing to live without the scope three, but they're going to try to put put on the table, put forward the scope one and scope two. So that's, I think you're right. There's a little bit of um, compromise, um, but I think critics are still likely to be concerned about the scope. It's not going to be popular. What do you think? <laughs> no. What do you, what do you think if I say, uh, I think everyone loves ESG ideas as long as they don't cost the shareholders money. And the minute the rubber meets the road and companies start disclosing, we had to spend $8 million on, data collection for the regulator, that $8 million could have been five cents in earnings this quarter. I think that that's, that's where the pragmatists break away from the idealists and there are just more pragmatists. Demodoran's done business. a lot of work on this, just quantitative work. It just says, it's just, it's just, it's a charade and it's costing a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. He had a great piece in the financial times a month or so ago, make, making a version of that point. And to this, not in my backyard kind of concept that you're talking about, like I, I like it unless I have to pay for yeah, it. No, it's great. You it's, do it. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Buffett has a quote that I think applies here. Um, it's a quote from St. Augustine, and St. Augustine is praying to God, and he's saying, God, please make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, my favorite Buffett quote, uh, he wrote this in the last 10 years. 
something about regulation. He said, if a state trooper follows you for 500 miles, you're going to get a ticket. <laughs> like, <laughs> like nobody is that perfect, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's a great, it's a great one. Uh, all right, we can, we can wrap on the ESG stuff. It seems like, I mean, you guys are writing comment letters to the SEC on this topic yeah. at, at your firm. So this is something that clearly there's a, a lot of horses in the race and a lot of people have a vested interest on the outcome of this stuff. Uh, yeah, what, that, I mean, it's a top tier issue for executives and boards, right? Yeah, it's it's top tier issue for executives and boards and, and shareholders and everybody else. I mean, it's and, and let me stress. I mean, it, it's a serious issue. Cl- climate change is, is real, and we we definitely have to manage it, and govern it. And I think there's a big debate about exactly how <laughs> how much mix of um, market innovation and carbon capture initiatives and how much government regulation that that pushes you know, that has um, an industrial policy that favors certain players and disfavors others. I think that's the debate. And my concern is I'd love to have that policy debate. I think the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, ought to help figure that out. I don't think the Securities and Exchange Commission is the right agency to help to facilitate that debate. Okay. I want to ask you about insider trading. You uh, for it or against it? Yeah, how often are you doing it? <laughs> this, this was a really interesting story that came about over the last month. This is the Wall Street Journal an executive bought a rival's stock. The SEC says that's insider trading. So it's shadow insider trading. Uh, let me let me set this up for you. Mm. Biotech executive Matthew Panawat bought options on another drug company stock and earned a windfall of $120,000. The Securities and Exchange Commission now says he committed insider trading even though he didn't buy his employer's stock and didn't have information about the company he bet on. As soon as I read this, I said, this has definitely been going on for 100 years. Because if you're an insider at a company, you definitely know things that are going on at one of your closer competitors. In this case, it's science. So you probably talk to other scientists um, and you have a pretty good sense of how they feel about their company's drug or whatever. How do you police this? It, it seems like they want to set the standard and and use the courts to make this a new version of insider trading. And I understand why we don't want this in society. I'm kind of shocked this hasn't, like, there's not a law in the books about this. Like this. Well, is, they're tr- that's how you establish yeah. law is you sue someone and win. So, right? Yeah, I th- I th- my sense is this is a long shot case. I mean, it, it, one of the problems with insider trading as a, as a law is it, it's not defined anywhere. Congress never said. Well, securities fraud. Yeah, it's it's within this very so there is no law about um, insider amorphous trading. thing. Oh, yeah, really? There's no, there's yes. no express law. It's about the, it. So what it's, is it's a securities fraud suit? Huh. Yeah. So that. it's it's this idea that you're not permitted to misuse your position uh, to take confidential information and yeah. use it for it's a your form own of, gain. It's a form of fraud. Yeah, and the, the SEC developed that on its on its own as a um, and the states had had done that too. It's it's not just the SEC. Um, but as the yeah, the SEC is the policeman on the beat, and so it likes to uh, flex its muscles, and so it tends to push the limits of the of the law. And the the the, the op- opposing force are the the courts that will rein it in if it gets too far, and that's how the current law of insider trading has been developed. So by SEC suing and courts sort of shaping it. And the current judicial standard, the court standard, is called the misappropriation theory, which basically means theft. So if you're working for a company, you owe that company the duty of confidentiality. You're not allowed to steal that information, take it home with you, and you're not allowed to steal it and trade on it. So that's the judicial boundaries. 
Um, so that lawyers advising companies have a similar duty to keep things confidential. So they're not allowed to trade on it either. And just to keep it tidy, those insiders are not allowed to tell their neighbors and friends. The neighbors and friends trading on that stolen information are committing fraud too. But that's about the scope of it. So to this approach to say you're an employee of this company, but because you're working there, you're learning about a rival, you're learning about an industry, you're learning about a product, um, you're not allowed to trade in that zone, that penumbra, is a reach. It's never been tested. I think it's a long shot. Uh, I think the SEC is reaching. I think my prediction is that a, that a court would not sustain this, not uphold their reach. Um, and you know, to Josh's point that that's you know, laws are made by filing a suit, winning a case. Um, but courts are very careful about that kind of innovation. They're very careful to make sure that people know what the law they is. They don't want to be in a landmark decision. Yeah, the judge he, is not looking for that when like, he wakes up in the morning. There's this great <laughs> uh, Latin phrase, ex post facto laws. There's, we're not yeah. in Our constitution and our history says you can't punish people by making a law after they did something. Well, here's their case. The SEC says two facts about Panowatch trading show it was illegal. First, his employer, Medivation, had a policy that forbade trading other companies' shares when employees had material non-public information about Medivation. And second, Panawat traded on his work computer just seven minutes after he allegedly learned that Pfizer would buy his company. So the guy is <laughs> the guy is like obviously like even if he's innocent of this. The guy is on the edge. But basically, basically, Pfizer is going to buy his company, and he says to himself, okay, what other stock will probably go up on that news? Like, everyone would have that thought. Most people would not okay, go into that's their- That's hilarious. But, okay, hold on. His purchase of Insight Options, Insight's the other company, Insight Options netted $120,000. He sold some of the contracts just days before buying them. He sold others weeks later and lost money on those, but still earned a profit overall. He's a former Merrill Lynch investment banker. This is also relevant. His objection, why he thinks the case should be tossed, Pfizer's interest in Medivation wasn't a corporate secret because news about the possibility of a deal had leaked months earlier. A French drug maker, Sanofi, had also tried to buy Medivation. Your Honor, everybody knew. What, what he's saying, <laughs> this thing was in play, man. Look at Seeking Alpha. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, this is going to be a fun case. I'm glad it's going to court. Right. I mean, look, I mean, the SEC is a, uh, their lawyers there are extremely sophisticated and they, they will only bring a case that has some interesting he, facts dude, like he looks, that. He looks bad. You know, exactly. And so they're right. But they they also know it's a test yeah, case. But, and a and thing when, when a court has to weigh in on this, it's got to be doing two things at once. It's got to resolve the particular matter right before it, and it's got to think about the implications of its of its ruling. And so a district court, a trial court, might be more inclined to follow those uh, unattractive facts and, and rule against this fellow. But an appellate court will have to sit back and say, but what would this mean for – What's the limiting principle? How will we define the sources of knowledge, the the, the the timing between you learned about something and when you did something? See, I don't know the legal term of this, but can't he just use the eh, defense? <laughs> yeah. In New York court, that would absolutely in, win. In, in, in New York. <laughs> That's a very, very <laughs> Brooklyn, the Brooklyn defense. Uh, I wanted to ask you, are there other companies in the market that have the potential to become – this is like – sounds stupid just as I'm saying it. 
maybe not the next Berkshire Hathaway, but that are Berkshire Hathaway-esque. And if so, why haven't they been discovered yet by investors? Like, Robin why, Hood. Why doesn't, no, seriously, why doesn't there seem to be an heir apparent? I know there are other insurance companies that are also investing the premiums. You know, you're involved Markel. with an insurance company, which we'll talk about in a minute. But like, what's your view of like why this is such a unique company and no one has really gotten even close to it in 50 years of notoriety? Excellent question. I think the combination of um, personality, timing, opportunities that Munger and Buffett represented um, is unique and just and of even course. the policy. Not, not replicable. Yeah. And of the course. policies that they put into place, you know, trust-based management, decentralized structure, insurance float that's used to make acquisitions, um, the patience that they've had, the, the loyalty. Um, uh, we can emulate parts of that in our lives and our businesses, but to get it all at once at all at that one time is, is a big part of the story. And to your point about you know, there are other companies that have tried and successfully emulated parts of this. Um, well, the outsiders. So I think like Cap Cities before it was acquired by uh, uh, Disney or ABC. I think yeah, uh, ABC first and then Disney. Yeah. ABC, right. Uh, Transdime, but that's, it's one industry. It's it's defense. Mm -hmm. uh, some of these companies are Berkshire-esque. They don't talk to analysts. They don't do roadshow. You know, they don't do the dog and pony show, um, the governance stuff, the decentral decentralization stuff. So they do exist, but they're not famous. But There's don't no you think, other Buffett. Don't you think the idea of taking in insurance premiums, which are a future liability, and using that money to invest in the equity of other companies, it sounds kind of crazy. Like, yeah, Buffett and Munger did it really successfully, but what if it doesn't work? A lot of insurance companies have failed by, by trying that strategy. But you're right. There are a you number. You just had to buy Coke and American <laughs> Express. Well, it was so hard. It was lucky. <laughs> or smart. But just buy there, some Apple. What's the problem? <laughs> there is a sort of insurance company model. And you, you referenced Markel. I'm, I'm on the board of Markel. And I'm a great admirer Bullish of the company. Bullish Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you can see, you see my S4s. I okay. buy the stock regularly. Okay, and uh uh, but it's it's a mini Berkshire. People say that it's a mini Berkshire, and exactly that business model it has a very disciplined underwriting program, and it generates a lot of flow. Who's, who's the CEO? Tom Gaynor. Is he the is he the founder? Uh, no, but he's been there for thirty eight years. But the it was the Markel family founded in nineteen thirties, and the third generation Markels are still on the board and still around. Um, but they're not attention seeking. They're not renting out a basketball arena and inviting their shareholders. Well, we actually are. Uh, oh, we, are? <laughs> we have exactly that. Aren't we? Right. We where, are you, where are you promoting at, this at, exactly? At the University of Richmond uh, okay. Basketball Arena last year, I think we had 2,000 uh, shareholders right. come. So We're going to have 3,000 right. so this year. That's something. We have a brunch at the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting every Sunday. Tom's hosted it uh, for 30 years. He had six people come the first year. And last year there were fifteen hundred. Okay. So we've got a following, and, I, and we, you know, we follow a lot of those practices that you just talked about: um, retained earnings, no dividend, very low debt. No, well, we, they do a, a quarterly earnings call, but it's not hyped. And Tom writes a very thoughtful letter, a lot like Warren's. Um, where Markel is a significant shareholder, of Berkshire Hathaway. It's the, probably the seventh largest shareholder. We've owned that stock oh, wow. for okay. thirty years. So there's a lot of similarity there. We we um, have a fixed end court income portfolio, obviously, but then a very big, I think, $10 billion of assets under management and equities, a very high-performing portfolio. And then we have 19, we've acquired 19 businesses and 
Non-insurance. Non-insurance. Yeah, everything from house house plants to concrete. Uh, you guys long in video? I'm just teasing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wanted to talk to you guys afterwards. Well, uh, well, afterwards. Well, about. So, uh, so, like, I remember Lucadia mm-hmm. was deemed to be the next Berkshire Hathaway, mm-hmm. and then they bought Jeffries but adopted the Jeffries name, and Dick Handler runs that business. But it looks more like an investment bank than it looks like the kind of holding company that could one day be. Yeah. Uh, Washington Post was kind of like a, kind of like a pro, you know, she was a protege of, of his and that sort of looked like the, the, but then that got bought. So it's just, it's just, it seems like none of these like ever get to the level where it's like, oh, we have a new Warren Buffett. Well, um, Washington Post then. By the way, anyone that says I'm the new Warren Buffett, you will usually lose money. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, this, that was no, a Bill Ackman I think, uh, Chamath. Yeah. Yeah. You take the Washington Post interesting because then they um, they sold the paper, but Graham Holdings continues to be a very much a mini yes. mini uh, and with the same prospect. What they bought TV networks yeah. and a learning a learning uh, educational business. Yeah, the family, family, still, the yeah. family runs that. Um, yes. The so Kay Graham was the matriarch. Yeah. Along with her late husband, then Don Graham was the CEO for a long time, and he retired three years ago, and his nephew is now running it. Um, Tom was on that board for a long time. Uh, Don is a close friend of ours. Yeah, it, lo- it looked like it's that was going. Got in that a direction. lot of that philosophy. Yeah. The other, the other funny thing is that companies that have um, achieved something like a Berkshire um, Echo were acquired by Berkshire. Uh, yes. So <laughs> Marmon Group was a big one, and Allegheny Insurance that's just two great, years ago. That's a great point. So if he sees somebody who's really doing that. He might just bring them on in. Maybe so. the next Berkshire Hathaway is SoftBank, and we all just have to stop. <laughs> stop. <laughs> Larry, I, I wanted to ask you about one of the hot topic items in corporate governance is this proliferation of stock-based comp, and it's really run amok at certain companies. Um, buybacks have been a hot-button topic for a long time, and correct me if I'm wrong, that is, that's something that's done. The board of directors and the finance committees are making those decisions. Uh Talk about corporate governance and where buybacks versus dividends fit into the equation. Yeah. These are capital allocation questions, and a a rational board or CEO will try to think about how to deploy each dollar of capital to its best and highest use, and there are four so different um, avenues, and they're not mutually exclusive, and it's not sort of linear, but the initial place to look is to see if we can reinvest that dollar in our existing businesses to grow organic growth at at attractive rates of return. Um, the second place is making acquisitions of new businesses that we can um, deploy capital at high rates of return. The third is to pay dividend to the shareholders. We, we don't have any other good ideas uh, to pay dividends to the shareholders. And there's a whole bunch of complicated factors that go into that in terms of your shareholder base and its appetite, um, whether they like to have cash. Some of them do, especially the non-taxable holders are happy to receive some cash. And if they can deploy it at higher rates of return than the company, that's a good thing to do. You have to worry a little bit about stockholders who don't want that cash, um, either because they're taxable or they've got plenty of liquidity and just would rather not have it. And that leads to the fourth uh, possibility, which is to buy your own stock back. And that was only attractive as an economic matter, as a rational matter, if your stock is trading below its intrinsic value. And if it is, that's a great way to deploy a dollar of capital because you're accreting value, you're increasing the value. Shrinking the, the flow, bigger earnings to spread out over a smaller number of shares. Exactly. So it increases no the ownership share of each continuing shareholder. And 
Um, and that's particularly attractive for your taxable shareholders because they, they can decide if they want the liquidity, if they want to receive that dollar or, or not. So that's a very shareholder-friendly approach to capital allocation. So that's the framework. And done um, thoughtfully in, in that manner, uh, it's the buybacks are perfectly legitimate, rational, friendly, good for um, the business. But if a board is authorizing buybacks at prices way above value, the company is destroying uh, value. So that is an irrational use. And that's where I think you get into some of the, the some of the controversy. Well, especially if they're doing it just to offset the dilution. Ster- sterilized buybacks where they're issuing $100 million worth of stock-based compensation, and then they're doing a $100 million buyback not as nasty. to hold the float steady. That right. looks gross. That's Outside of this framework. Yeah, exactly. That's where the problem is. <laughs> when you framework. see those charts of stock. But, so a lot of companies are doing that, though. Uh, Tom Reiner at Altimeter has done really great work. Um, so Lyft, for example, the company the, the company run rate dilution, it's it's 9%. We have this, uh, John. Uh, Wayfair, it's, it's 8%. I mean, it's crazy. Somebody else, RBC, did work looking at stock-based comp as a percentage of revenue. And Snowflake... These it's, are all the tickers. Look at, can we talk about Snap? It's the third biggest offender on here. Uh, Michael, what is the 8%? Just diluting the shit out of their shareholders. So I don't know if these numbers are completely accurate, but I read somewhere the company basically lost like $2 billion or more since it's been public and has paid out that same amount in stock-based comp. Company has never earned never earned money in its lifetime. For the shareholders. Yeah. So the st- the stock is below its IPO price. They've paid like $2 billion to themselves for running it. And they have, they've basically done that via uh, SBC. There's there's not even a buyback there. This is from RBC Capital Markets. Stock-based comp as a revenue, as a percentage of revenue, a three-year average or since IPO. Snowflake, it's over 50%. I mean, these are massively dilutive numbers. And this is... Clearly not shareholder-friendly behavior. The other thing is almost every name on here is tech or tech-adjacent. So it almost seems like it's cultural on the West Coast for, you know, that type of payout to-, to Well, it, it is. So employees. again, again, this guy, Tom Rader from Altimeter, non-tech, it's 0.5% annualized dilution. And that's been steady. It's basic, That's basically what it is. Large cap tech is double that. And then internet and software, it's triple that. I mean, just massively. Now, there is, there's reason for this, right? This is the mechanism through which they retain talent, attract talent, pay their employees. But my God, shareholders are taking it on the chin. I guess nobody cares as long as the stock's going up. Well, I'd like to get that uh, culture to read the essays of Warren Buffett because he's got some <laughs> excellent – that capital allocation framework that I just described. Good luck. Can you coming, make it as an NFT? Well – uh, and the boards I'm on, you know, we take a ver- and, and Berkshire's board very different uh, approach. We don't pay in stock options, uh, and at Constellation Software, um, the board is paid in cash, and then we have to use the after-tax cash, 100% of it, to buy stock, buy stock with our own money yeah. in the company, and then we have to hold it for an average holding period of I think it's five years. Uh, and then we just tend to keep holding it <laughs> that way. So, and um, so we never get it, get into these kind of situations. Well, this which- game worked on the way up when the companies were growing and when the market rewarded growth because they were reinvesting. A lot of them didn't have positive free cash flow, and this is the way to compensate their employees. Now on the way down, it just looks horrendous. 
a lot of this, a lot of this was uh, papered over by the fact of rising share prices. Yeah. Yeah. Now I like to look, I mean, going back to your other question about looking at a board or looking at, looking at corporate governance, I, I like to see leadership and it, it could go down to the executive ranks too. I like to see stock ownership, but I really like to see it bought with their own money. Was yeah. Constellation Brands in your book, Dear Shareholder? Uh, Constellation Brands, Constellation Software. Yeah, we feature in my book, um, Margin of Trust, and in a couple books, Margin of Trust. Remember, I wrote all those books. <laughs> yeah. But I, I feature Constellation Shareholder. But in I read one of your books two summers ago, and I thought it was Dear Shareholder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, it was all the share, the letters to shareholders. Sort of letter, so what you did was you uh, curated the best insights from the CEOs at 11 or 12 companies. Prem Watson was in there from yep. Fairfax and – uh, I thought Constellation was in there. Yeah, That's where Mark I Leonard. first learned of it. Yep. So it's Canadian or Toronto traded? Yeah, Toronto based. Um, but we, what are they doing? They're buying. They're like very, very niche verticals within software, like car dealership operation software, things that like nobody would even think about. And then they own a constellation of them. Yep, exactly. It's, it was okay. all business to business, so consumers wouldn't have heard of it. It's not a household brand name. But Mark Leonard founded the company 25 years ago on the thesis that each of these little businesses would have their own moats, their yeah. own competitive advantages, um, because they're working inside a particular industry and inside a particular company and helping that company manage mission-critical parts of their business, um, very high value sticky. to the company, sticky, high-switching costs. Um, a lot of expertise and, and and the economics of these businesses, while they're all in different industries, cars, parking, justice, libraries, museums, aviation, we're in everything, every industry, thousand. Um, but the economics of the software business is the same so that we can ha we have a lot of base rates and ratios and best practices that uh, that work in every industry in every geography. So we've got this enormous no. So he started doing 25 years ago. We've now made 1000 acquisitions. Oh my god. In 80 different countries. Um and we have got learnings from all of them. It's a very highly decentralized, autonomous business So when you buy one of these, you leave the people in place. Try to. Yeah. If if possible yep. and just say do what you do but now there's more money behind you if you need it. Yep. And, and a lot of knowledge, you know, there's, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. best practices. And that's what a lot of people do. Say, you know, it's a small, um, you know, say say you're, you're working in a high-tech industry in Tel Aviv in Israel. You know, you got 40 guys, a lot of really smart people. You're doing well. You've got good clients. You're building and building. But but you're just sort of at a breaking point. You, just, you don't really know how to get bigger. You don't really know what to do next. Um, people at Constellation know. <laughs> so right. um, that's a great reason to sell to Constellation at, for the autonomy and, and that decentralization, the balance sheet, the resources, but also the knowledge. The sh it's a sharing culture, best practices, and that sort of stuff. So we take those little bit, you know, this business and just help it. Not everyone works out, but we help it get to the next level. And so it's been a remarkable um, business. And I think, you know, those letters that Mark Leonard wrote that I collected in, in Dear Shareholder um, speak to the culture, speak to a lot of the economics I've just described, but a lot of sense of of trying to get decisions made by the person who's closest to them because that will probably be the best decision. It also gets the best out of people. So a lot of um, sort of organizational and behavioral thinking behind behind the company. It's so, it's so hard to be decentralized uh, just because the tendency is always to consolidate power centrally. Uh, either out of paranoia or greed or for some reason, it's so hard to like find really talented people 
and leave them the hell alone. Yeah. But that's, that's what Munger and, and Buffett did. And that's what they did. And that's what Constellation has done, Josh. Yeah. You hit it on the head. It's so hard. That's why people, you know. I in, try to give Michael autonomy. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I, mean, I think what Mark Leonard was able to do, and this is why it's so hard to replicate Berkshire. It's like you have yeah. to figure out some mechanism to produce trust and so that you're able to delegate. And I think there are a lot of features at Constellation that enable doing it. But one of them is the, the similarity of the economics in all the different industries. So we have base case and ratios that work in every language, in every civilization, in every culture. And so when a manager comes in and says, oh, yeah, I just, you can't do that for auto supply in Brazil. We say, well, let's talk through this. <laughs> and, so, and so it's oh, a system where, yeah, if a person uh, it, you know, consistently fails to improve the ratios, we have, you know, managers will talk to them, you know, so it's not like you're just, oh, good, do whatever you want. It's if you meet these um, basic requirements, you can do anything you want, but you do have to meet the basic requirements. Now, that's a lot harder to place like Berkshire because the economics of candy and freight are completely different. So it's, he, he needs a different toolkit, but the, um, the need to have a device that assures that, that trust and so that you can rely on, on the autonomy is the biggest challenge. So that was part one, <laughs> and we will be back after a break. We'll do another two hours with uh, Larry Con. Did you have fun on the show? Yes? I love it. This Dude, is we great. Would keep, I, would, I would keep you here all day if I could, but I won't. Uh, I just appreciate, like, all your insight and spending this time with us, and we're huge fans of your books, and just you seem to have a really fascinating, fun life. Like you seem Thank to, you. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like you wake up, you deal with smart people all day long, yeah. you have responsibilities, you have real work to do, but it yeah. seems like you're, right? Like It's been pretty sense? cool. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't okay. that, doesn't that describe you guys it does. too? It <laughs> it's does. like, we are so lucky. 90% like, of the time. 90%. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. My, oh, man, my That's job great. is only 10%. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. It's been amazing. Thank you very much. We always end the show with favorites. We ask people to share uh, something that they're reading or watching or listening to or something that the audience might not know about. So I'd love to hear what you do when you're not serving on boards and reading and writing. Well, I think one of the, one of the books I'm reading right now, I do read a lot, but not necessarily in this, but is is the um, biography, or autobiography by Jim Mattis. Mm, uh, he's the general. The, the former general, and I think he was Secretary of Defense in the What's Trump it called? Is that Shoe Dog? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's called, <laughs> Phil Knight's book is brilliant too. I it's called Dear Shareholder. It's yes, yes. Go out right, right now. Get it. It's 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 a funny name. It's called um, Call Sign Chaos, and it, that's his call sign back in the Marines. And and they gave him that so Call Sign Chaos on his radio transmission. This chaos, and they they gave him that name. He's a great leader, a revered figure, and yeah. it's a phenomenal book. Mad, about, his about nickname leadership. is Mad Dog. His nickname is Mad Dog, and and he he helped win. Uh, Operation Desert Storm. He, he he was just just he is an amazing leader, um, and and he's also really nice and cool and like his troops love him and all that stuff and they make fun of him and that's all good. And the chaos was, it stands for does the commander have another outstanding idea? Commander have another outstanding idea? Chaos because uh. he'd come up with ideas. So what did, what do you guys think about this? And they'd be like, "That's the dumbest thing I ever heard." Okay. And so one day when they were what all, about this? They were all talking about him like, "What the hell is this? this? Is the dumbest idea?" And he had chaos written up there. And they, he's like, "Oh, okay. You don't like that idea?" So they gave him the nickname 
or the call oh, sign fun. chaos. That's, but that's it's a funny. great. My the best thing about the book it's it's a I mean it's interesting because it's about the military, it's about combat and leadership, and and then about leading from a desk and and setting strategy. So it covers the range of um, context in which you have to think about leadership. And what he does all the time, it's point, page after page almost, is that he tries to, he wants to delegate, he wants to get decision-making made down at the lowest possible level. I mean, you picture, you know, you're, you're marching up to Baghdad being shot at. You, you, your front leaders can't be calling back to ask you what, what we yeah. should do now. So, so he leads that way. And what he says is, uh, I just, I formulate my intent and I make it clear what my intent is. And then the troops figure out how to execute. They and interpret so, the intent yeah. to so make my decisions. Intent, yep. My intent might be cut off the enemy lines on, on the West. And then the colonel, he, the sergeant has to go out and figure out, should we blow up that bridge? Should we get that brigade? You know, how should we do this? And that's up to them. That's how me and Nicole work together. <laughs> no, I swear to God. Like, Nicole knows, knows okay. what the intent is. There you go. And then for her, it's like, by any means, that's... I said, listen, Larry Cunningham needs to be on the show. I don't care what you have to do. Make decisions. <laughs> Is and that she does why it. that happened? Okay. She's made, this is her second year with us. It's great. Her second year with us. Un- unbelievable. Excellent. Unbelievable. Yeah. Shout so, out to Nicole. Well, you'd love that book, Josh. And I think. I'm not a great. I, so I've been put into a leadership position. I think I have some leadership qualities. Then I think I have some very anti-leadership qualities. I don't know if that's going to change. I'm, I'm 47 years old, but I do read a lot of books about leadership. So I'm definitely going to look for that. Excellent. Appreciate it. Hey, Michael, you have a favorite for us this week? I listened to uh, Bill Ackman with Lex Friedman. I told you you would like it. Uh, Lex Friedman is... <laughs> no, I did. I did. I did. it. I did. All right. Thank you. I thought that Bill Ackman came off came off fairly well. Uh, Lex Friedman is an interesting interviewer. He, I mean, it's it's pure monotone. What do you mean, Michael? I mean, how did he... I, I don't get it. How did he do it? It's monotone. It's this, magic. <laughs> It's. Uh, are you familiar with Lex Friedman? Yeah, no, sorry. It's just. It's just one tone. Anyway, uh, I thought that was worthwhile. Um, Shogun, on Hulu. You watched it? I did. I didn't get to it yet. Uh, it's. It's pretty spectacular. I'm really excited about it. It's like big, right? The scope it's huge. of it. It's huge. It yeah. like feels like Game of Thrones. I heard. It's gonna be epic. Okay. There's a lot in Japanese with subtitles. Yeah. Okay. I watch these whole things on with subtitles now. That's like a very millennial or Gen Z thing. I watch everything with subtitles. Yeah, I just like automatically subtitles on. Except for sports, everything but sports. Okay. Uh, big TV show guy or not really? I'm, try- I'm watching things. I'm trying to learn Spanish, so I watch them in Spanish with English subtitles. You watch Narcos? Mm. It kind of helps, yeah, seeing that. Yeah. that. I mean, that's the best. All right. Uh, the Regime is coming from HBO. This looks like it's going to be their next big prestige show. I think it- it's Kate Winslet playing the chancellor of a central European dictatorship. And she, I mean, she's amazing. And I think it's the people from uh, succession are behind the show. So it seems like it has a lot of good ingredients. Um, all right. My favorite is Kyle Bass got ratioed into the stone age for sending a very ill-advised tweet. People send tweets my way, or I see them in articles. I'm not really like on, on Twitter actively. Uh, this looks like it was a lot of fun though. So this is, uh, no disrespect to Kyle Bass, this is a hedge fund manager who goes and stays in the Carlisle Hotel and then tweets the room service bill. I get, I don't, looking for other people to be as outraged as he is, or maybe looking for sympathy, I don't know. It's a $90 breakfast. Uh, <laughs> the orange juice is $14. The Diet Coke is $8, which by the way, Diet Coke for breakfast is interesting. $26 waffle, $12 bacon. $9 cover charge. Not sure what that's for. Uh, $10 gratuity. 
$6 tax gets us to 85. It's an $85 breakfast. So he um, brilliantly takes a picture of the receipt, tweets it, and it's now like the meme of the week. Just like, I, I don't know. I kind of I kind of miss that aspect of Twitter where people just like martyr themselves and uh, become like the, did you see any of these responses? It was, I couldn't. It was, it was just- so outrageous. It was so outrageous. Uh, Dan Loeb chose to reply. He said, try intermittent fasting and you'll save money and glucose spikes. <laughs> like everybody, everybody, when you look at the responses, it's a who's who of financial industry people. When you say stupid shit and hijack it for political reasons, you get, both sides, doesn't matter where, you, you just get destroyed as you should. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who else is in here? Bookvar is in here. Every Everyone's uh, everyone's in here. Nonsense. Should I reply? Yeah, have fun. <laughs> get in there. How are, the, how are the waffles? All right. All right, Larry, thank you so much for being on the show today. We want to tell people where they can follow you or learn, get more of your insights. I know you're writing for, uh, I guess it's an industry trade, uh, boards and directors. Yeah, uh, but I think the best place, you you, you were talking about Twitter. I, I prefer LinkedIn. Yeah, and, me too. And I do a lot of stuff there. So You're great, on, the, you're the great on LinkedIn. And how often are you contributing columns to MarketWatch? I used to do it every week. That's uh, a lot. For, for two years. And it, it is a lot, especially I'm doing a lot of other things now. So now it's just sort of whenever whenever I have something interesting to say. Which okay. All right. It's and, rarer. <laughs> and anyone who wants to connect with you on LinkedIn, like. Yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd be right. happy to connect with people from your show, that's, uh, your audience. That's super cool. You're going to have about a thousand requests tomorrow, but you you could sort through them judiciously. Oh, the weekend's coming, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lawrence Cunningham, thank you so much for being on the Compound of Friends. We appreciate you. Great job all week to the team. Duncan, John, Daniel, Nicole, Rob, Sean, thank you guys. And thank you so much to the listeners. We appreciate all the positive feedback. Uh, Keep it coming. Keep the reviews coming. It really helps us trick the Google algorithm, trick the podcast algorithm. No, I'm just kidding. We really appreciate the ratings and reviews. Uh, They mean a lot to us. That's it from us. We will talk to you soon. That was yeah, great. That was fun. So that was the warm up. Yeah. I just want okay, to kind of give you a sense of what the show's going to be like. <laughs> That's a great job.